Hello and welcome to the Demographicast. Uh, this week I'm joined as always by Jack Street and this week by Olivia Lever. How are you both doing? Good, thanks Britt. Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Thank you for, for joining us today, Olivia. Um, I think we're going to sort of just jump straight into it and, and ask you how you sort of got into politics because I we found you on Twitter and you're, uh, we... Obviously, you just told us a minute ago that you're studying marketing, but you're also the director of Blue Beyond, which is a uh, it's a think tank for young conservatives. Um, I think you described it a think tank beyond beyond the Westminster bubble, is what I uh, saw on the the uh, Blue Beyond page. Um, so I just wanted to sort of ask to start off with how you got into politics. Yeah, so thank you both for having me on. Um, it's a great delight to be here. So how I got into politics was, um, it was kind of quite, quite natural. So my dad was a conservative councillor um, when I was younger. So politics has always necessarily been quite like a, a big part of my home life. Um, I was never like pushed into it or anything like that. It was very much my own decision. Then the 2017 general election rolled around. I wasn't quite 18 yet. It was about kind of, you know, about like three months before I turned 18. So I just missed out on voting. Um, and anybody out there that was involved in politics or was certainly starting to become involved in politics, like kind of at the time of the 2017 general election, will remember how toxic it was. And it was Corbyn's first election. And there was like this big narrative out there that because I was a young person and because I was a woman as well, that I should be some like big raging lefty. Um, and it wasn't. And obviously there was like kind of the Brexit thing going around there. Um, so that kind of interested me as well because I voted, well, I supported leave. Um, so yeah, so kind of a bit pumped up, angry almost, and kind of 18 and a bit like naive and a bit, bit stupid really, looking for fight. <laughs> Um, came to University of Liverpool um, and I fell in love with the city and I fell in love with um, my course before I got involved in politics. So I came here in the September of 2017 and there was not really a, a Tory society here. There was a bit of a remnants of one and the way that it was, it what was happening was is that a campaign manager from Merseyside was here and said like, look, I've now finished my master's. I can't really like sit here like i was allowed to do the fresh affair on a bit of an off chance because i was kind of just out the door i need somebody to run this for me so me myself and kind of like a few friends said well i'll tell you what then let's get this going and we certainly had the demand so we just created the supply um and what we did was is we set up the society properly we got in touch with the union um and we held elections and i was elected president so um that was kind of my merry journey on how I've ended up where I am now. Um, and then for two years, I was president. I did all the socials. I did social media. I got involved with student union politics. And I've had quite the kind of, not necessarily an exciting run, but it's been a been an interesting one, shall I say, being a, a diehard Tory in Liverpool um, at, at a Scouse University. Um, and then June 2019 rolled around and I was... At the time, I was in my second year and I was going off on either I hadn't got my year in industry placement yet or I was going on to my final year of studies and I was like, OK, I don't want to do this. Like, I need to get my head straight. So I left um, kind of very sadly. I was very sad to leave. Um, and I then found Blue Beyond and I joined the exec in the July as student liaison lead, drawing off my experiences of what I'd done at Liverpool, 
so working with university societies building partnerships with them meeting them talking to them um and then i started to head up our liaison department here set up the liaison team and then i got appointed as director um as our outgoing director luke is sadly leaving due to he's just getting old and he's kind of had a that's the politest way that's the politest way for me to put it (laughs) so yes what was what was it like um being one of the most active tories at at uni in in liverpool it must have been like you say i mean it was an exciting interesting experience but sort of must kind of feel like you're behind enemy lines in a way yeah it was and i think the thing is is like part of my personality is very much like take me as 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 you get me like i don't really care what you think and i think the thing was for me i did a course that wasn't populated with with political people you know my my course is for business students um so the ones that are there a lot are are closet conservatives really a lot are just not very much interested um so it was very much outside the classroom so i was kind of disjointed from it in a way that some students aren't because the head of the marxist society or the guy who's a diehard lefty with the hammer and sicker in his instagram bio is sat in their seminar groups and i i didn't have that Mm. Um, but yeah, and I would say I've had my fair share of um, kind of rough runnings, as as I would say. So I got kind of targeted by the Tab last year. They wrote, I think they wrote in total something daft like five different articles containing myself um, or focused around me. But I think at the end of the day, I've always felt like conservative students or you know kind of liberal tories or thatcherites or any form of, of anybody that sits on that kind of right of the, of the of the political spectrum deserved a home in the same way that the left did they deserved a place to go and have a drink with somebody they deserved a place to sit in a group chat and, and have a natter and have a debate and do all these things that the left-wing students did and i think uh, um, a lot of students don't really understand that, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty lucky because we, we were involved in uh, in the political union quite heavily in, in our third year. Brett and I went to the same university and it was populated with people across the political spectrum and we always yeah, had was. really healthy debates, didn't we? Mm, yeah, it was quite broad. Yeah. I was surprised, I think, to, to see how, how broad there it was. There wasn't a lot of divisiveness at all. I mean, I, I remember us, you know, we would sit down, uh, we'd have our debates on a Friday and we'd go to the karaoke afterwards and it'd be, you know, the conservative students and, and like me, who's I'm more left wing and I'm a Labour member. And we'd sit down, we'd have a nice chat and then somebody would get up and sing a song. And that's how it should be. I think and that's not the experience that a lot of, of students have. Do you, How much do you think, particularly, you know, being outside of, of London, um, Brett lives in London, I come from just outside of London. How much do you think that sort of informed your politics and in what way do you think that that has kind of influenced your work, especially with with Blue Beyond? Yeah, so my work with Blue Beyond is, um, it really did resonate with home. And I remember I, I when I first met Luke and I first kind of spoke to him, like mm. he's from yeah. um we have so much to thank from him because he was in London and he was looking out and he was like, like if I, if kind of that like young 16 year old in Canterbury feels disconnected who's yeah. only like really really what do they feel like in the north and I think the thing is for me when I know a lot of northerners are kind of brought up with that thing of the south is very different politics are very different funding's very different um and kind of being a northerner you are kind of brought up with that thing of 
kind of like, oh, well, it is like a little bit different down south. And I think certainly going to uni, you see how some things are different. So I remember a conversation with a friend a few months ago and she said to me, oh, I, I just went to my GP for a checkup. And I was like, what? That is insane. <laughs> so, and I was so shocked that that can kind of happen. Um, so yeah, I think kind of being in the North has influenced my politics in a way. Um, that I, you know, you certainly do believe in hard work. You believe in the value of earning what you have, that it, nobody's really entitled to that. It's very much yours. And I think, you know, I always I always look on the Brexit debate and I think this is the best way that it's been illustrated in our modern times in the fact that, you know, so many vote, people voted to leave because we all felt forgotten and a bit yeah. left behind um there is the big immigration debate again you know and there's all these headlines going around of oh you know there is like twice as much immigration in the north as there is in the south um so i think kind of in a way my politics have very much been kind of influenced by my own personal experiences by kind of then also going to uni and you see the differences in kind of what your southern friends have had to kind of experience in their lives or you know, what their education has been like or what their, their NH experiences with NHS have been like compared to yours and then even friends who live in, for example, in Wales or in Scotland yeah. and how vastly different they actually are. Mm. Can you g give us examples, not because I, I doubt it, but just to, for like uh, for our audience to, to hear what the, the differences you've noticed are because I think that there's uh, people, at least my impression from living down south is that if somebody mentions this divide they don't really know exactly what they're referring to um can you elaborate on that at all yeah so for example one of the things is for example i was privately educated um shocking i know a story. <laughs> um but one of the things that i was privately educated was is because the selections in education were so poor where i lived um, there were issues with the religious schools that I could have gone to. Um, they had very, very bad, poor reputation for the conduct of teachers. Um, or So my parents sat there and made a choice and went, well, do you know what? We can either shell out a ma massive amounts of money or she can go somewhere where she won't be very well treated. So, um, but another example kind of would be, so I kind of looked this up and, you know, in the Northeast, they have like the highest percentage of children claiming free school meals. Um, spending kind of per pupil is a lot higher in London than it is, um, you know, for a primary school child in the North. So, and it's actually quite funny because I was researching this and um, in 2004, back when a lot of this like kind of like initial kind of change started, you know, the spending like children in London were actually behind children in the North. Mm. But then when they've plunged all this money and it's kind of reversed it and all caught up again. Um, examples as well, kind of if we if we kind of go over the union. So I have a friend in Murray and she was telling me that, um, you know, what the SNP have done is they're now making mothers drive two hours in the snow in minus 12 temperatures to go and give birth because they are so rural they are you know having to, they won't give them a maternity union unless you are giving birth to an extremely simple delivery which personally in my opinion doesn't really exist um you know you're not going to get that which i think is a bit ridiculous so one of the things that's always kind of going around as well and as i've got older i've kind of learned this is, is that 
There isn't necessarily the gap as well between north and south, but it's between rural and urban areas. Um, so, yeah. for example, you know, spending per child in rural areas is a lot lower than spending per child in urban areas. Now, that does kind of differ um, on many factors. So, for example, how many children are in um, state care, how many children are receiving free school meals. Um, and, you know, when I say state care, that also means things like how many children are special needs, you know, have things like that. So there is the, the north-south divide is when you talk about it and you talk about these examples a lot more complex than what people actually think on the surface yeah um and i don't know if that's just a demographic thing as well for example you know you have a lot more children for example where i live in liverpool in these very very urban areas you have a lot more children on preschool meals than you do for example for a child in the middle of gloucester in the middle of a little village somewhere just because of the way that the demographics is so i think that when we sit and we talk about this it is something quite kind of careful to be to be to be discussed um and kind of mm. more why there's a lot more widely things to encompass into the debate than there actually is already yeah do you think that the reason yeah. that we probably haven't uh, started to make as many inroads into this issue as as we can is because we like to put things in those kind of binary terms sort of north v south um we don't like to look at things in a nuanced way it's much easier to kind of uh, say you know the tories don't care about people up north for example when really the, the 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 fact of the matter may be that we're talking like you say about something that's a really kind of nuanced issue that takes a lot of careful consideration there are lots of factors going into into why there is this divide between urban and urban and rural uh, do you think that's more more the case or do you think there has there has been some neglect um, from central government um, yeah i do think that the, the, the this has changed really and it's like you said it's a nuanced debate so for example when i was first um heading into politics in 2017 you know i was seeing the difference for example i i went to uni and met people that didn't need to travel to different towns to different boroughs to different you know i even went across like a county line from greater manchester to lancashire because the the ed standards of education where i lived were, were appalling really um so i had to travel but so at that point i think it was very easy especially for a, and i think this is the case with a lot of young people to make those decisions but as you move out into the wider world it's like you said it's not necessarily as black and white as all tories hate northern people it could not be further from the truth i think the last general election really saw that i think the brexit vote saw that um and yeah, and I think we do need to look at this more carefully in that what is actually happening in urban areas? What are the causes for this? Why are there issues in the, in rural areas? You know, is this is this to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of the time schools will be miles away from where people live? Um, is, you know, issues in kind of youth employment to do with the fact that there's not the infrastructure there to do, to, you know, to ferry, you know, a 16-year-old that wants to go and work in a pub do they have to ferry themselves halfway yeah. across a town that, that they probably wouldn't have to do in an urban area because there's just more resources there? Mm. What's your view then on the sort of the way since the last election, particularly, obviously, you know, the big caveat of, of the pandemic, um, trying to put that aside since the last election, how the current Conservative Party have have treated those who you know many people have said lent their vote to the, the conservative party in the last election um and gave them the massive majority that they did do you see that being a success do you think that that vote will continue to be um given to the, the conservative party 
Um, so this is quite interesting because looking at this is actually something that I actually covered in my dissertation. Um, and the messaging that the that the Conservative Party put out the last general election was this one of Boris is going to help you, you know, Boris will get Brexit done, back Boris. And it was that kind of Brexit, Brexit, Brexit message. But there was also this very much positive, um, you know, hope, it's aspiration, it's Britain after Brexit, we can get all this done, we can have all this growth. Um, and it's whether, you know, you can bounce back from that. And personally, I'm. it will be interesting to see how we do. But for example, I saw a statistic on Twitter earlier that out of something like the 320 something days that we've been in lockdown in total, businesses in Manchester have been open only open for 309 of them. So whilst the government have put things out like the furlough scheme, there's been lots of bounce back grants, you know, they can only last for so long and ultimately businesses want to open. People in the north, they want to go out, they want to go and see their friends. And it's a knock-on effect as well. So I'll give you an example. My mum and dad run their own Vanite company. Whilst my mum and dad, yes, have been allowed to stay open during this, they have lost earnings because they can't go and supply the restaurant that, that you know, goes to the um, wholesaler every week because they aren't going to the wholesaler because of the shots. So it's a knock-on effect. And I think that the party really do need to give out this roadmap out. What has been said and done has been said and done, really. And there's no point sat there mulling over it. At the end of the day... You know, the North has been disproportionately um, affected. Um, for example, you know, kind of Manchester's been shut for such a long time. Um, in Liverpool, I'll give the example of Mayor Joe Anderson. He's just been arrested for fraud. So, uh, but then sat there and played the bargaining chip of saying two completely different things. Um, so, and kind of said, oh, you know, we need more lockdowns to save more lies. And then kind of it's like, well, oh, well, I need all this money from the government. So it's quite hard. And I think ultimately it's the bounce back. What is the what is the government going to do next? Are we going to re-implement help eat out to help out? Are we going to re-implement some form of drinking scheme? How is the vaccine passports going to work? How is this going to benefit kind of, you know, the employment and what people want? So it, it's, it's a tricky situation and we're not being given anything at the moment. And I think this is half the issue. A lot of people are feeling so negative because yeah. there's all these headlines wandering around and there's all this, you know, there's one headline from the Telegraph that says, oh, pubs are all going to be open by like the 1st of April or something like that. And then there's one from the Sunday Times that says they're not going to be open till August. So <laughs> at the moment, the government is making itself suffer with its own silence and it needs to come out and say something. Yeah, the vacuum will lead to sort of misinformation being spread won't it and that's what i think is you know kind of like you say it will be so fascinating in the next election to see whether that vote is is returned because the thing that i i've said since the last election is for the conservative party to regain those seats which i i actually think will be incredibly difficult to do um particularly after after the pandemic and and with brexit and i'm sure that you know we'd probably have some disagreements on brexit but um i, I think it will be very very difficult to, to to win those those back what people in the north the way to win, win back those votes in the north is to give um people in the north something that's going to tangibly improve their lives that that's what people want to see they want their vote to be used to um for, for central government to, to pass policies that are going to improve people's lives that's the role of government um, and until that happens, until the, that we can see that sort of tangible change, it's going to be very difficult for any government to win back the trust of, of those um, those voters, and rightly so. And I, th I think we've seen the same thing in Scotland as well, um, with with both the SNP and the, the problems that the Labour Party have had in winning votes in Scotland. 
um, it's incredibly difficult to to put your tr get get voters trust when you're do not doing anything to to benefit their lives. Um, and I think it will be easy for the, the Conservative Party to use the next four years, um, get comfortable. Uh, they're not having great pressure being put on them by the opposition at the moment anyway, um, and really miss out in, in the next election. So, yeah, like you say, it will be it will be an interesting one. Mm. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree on that fact. And I think the problem is at the minute is, is that Starmer um, is having issues with the Labour Party. You know, he's still got the relics of Corbyn that are Rebecca Long Bailey, that are Zara Sultana, um, you know, hiding in, hiding there really. And it's like every time something comes out, you know, and they're coming out with all these really left-wing wants and needs, for example, you know, the scrap tuition fees is going on at the minute because all university students are being ripped off. So, but what Starmer wants to do is he wants to shed that debate. He doesn't want that kind of hard left, Corbyn debate there and his candidates and I think that's going to be his issue is, is what is he going to do is he going to bring these new new MPs in what is Starmer's new policy because at the moment Starmer's got this issue that everything is reactionary to what the government does it's not two steps ahead it's two steps behind so what Starmer comes out with will be quite interesting but yeah and I agree with you that they need something tangible so for example you know kind of Nissan saying in, in um, Sunderland is a great example of um tangible benefits um you know northerners do want that thing but one thing that the star will have to deal with the next election is this hard left corbyn kind of narrative that if you are a northerner and you vote for the tories it's like turkey's voting for christmas that is not the case at all and that is what lost them in the last election so if starmer can weed that out the labor party then he's got some a serious serious you know kind of chance at winning something and i think it will be interesting to see what happens at the next election does starmer have the backbone to reconnect with northern voters um or is starmer gonna kind of sway and sit there and be torn between a very kind of left-wing nec and corbyn's hard supporters so it'll be interesting to see what happens definitely yeah mm. is it sorry bro go ahead no, go, go on. i was gonna say it's fascinating to me that we're sat here talking about politics and going politicians need to talk about policy uh, it just boggles my mind that we're still in this position i think that you know uh, like like you say after the the corbyn uh, sort of starmer power shift and there's i think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there i think that ultimately uh, if if keir starmer re reworded a lot of what was in the manifesto in in 2017 and in 2019 the labor party would have still have a good chance of, of winning power i genuinely believe that because i think that we've seen that there, there were policies in, in both of those manifestos that would have been beneficial um, if they had been implemented, you know, through this last year. Um, but the problem is he doesn't, he hasn't, um, he hasn't, you know, announced any policies. So we're in this vacuum again, where who knows what the Labour Party stands for. And as a Labour member, it's incredibly frustrating not to have anything to argue about, not to have anything to get behind. You know, there's plenty of ideas um, as to what a good policy would, would look like at the moment and what, what the Labour Party's flagship policy should be. But not having the, the, the Labour Party commit to those is, is incredibly frustrating. And um, all it all it leads to is is us not making, making inroads. And, you know, it's my personal opinion that the, the Conservative Party have done a terrible job um, through the the pandemic and the fact that the Labour Party haven't taken the lead that many people thought they would, you know, we saw all this stuff about people saying any other leader um, than Jeremy Corbyn would be twenty points ahead in the polls. We haven't seen that, so the Labour Party obviously isn't doing a good enough job, and the the Tories have have done enough to kind of 
um, keep that core support. Um, you know, I I think that, that it's very likely that there'll be a hung parliament in, in the next election and this kind of political deadlock that, that we've seen before will remain because really we don't have anyone that really speaks to, to the country. It's, it's, it's a strange, strange position that we're in. Mm. Yeah, I massively agree with that point. And I think when you look at the polling um, of leaders that come out of YouGov and stuff, it's quite interesting because... Boris is kind of always drifting around that kind of like 40, 50% mark, but Starmer isn't that far behind, but he's still behind Boris. Um, now, obviously, in recent kind of weeks and months or whatever, that we, we have had the vaccine rollout that's been incredibly successful. Um, but I looked at some figures the other day and it said something like 52% believed that Boris had handled it badly, but then 41% also believed that Starmer had handled it badly. <laughs> so it's kind of like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. um, and I think ultimately the pandemic and coming out of this will show the survival of the fittest. Now, um, Boris has got an extremely strong personal brand that Starmer is yet to build. At the moment, Starmer is struggling because he's still got the ties to Corbyn. Everybody sat there calling him two-faced because he sat on Corbyn's front bench, but now he's sat there saying, oh, no, we need to get Labour back to the heartlands. So it's like, well, what do you actually believe? So I think it will be interesting to see what happens, but at the end of the day, each party leader has got to stand on their own two feet, speak for themselves, and if they are not speaking for themselves, the public do see through this. You know, the general public are not thick. They do know... Um, who is being controlled by a, a party HQ press officer, who is being controlled by a staffer writing their speeches for them. So it will be interesting to see. Um, there's a lot to kind of wait out for. And how Skarma does will be interesting because, you know, you see bits of him and there's a bit of personality there, but then sometimes, you know, it's just kind of this pale, stale yeah. sort of, man and and people don't want that they want charisma and they want somebody to look forward to and i think the issue is that at the minute is, is that starmer is seen by um kind of the hard left of what i've seen some of the hard left of my kind of like people that i go to uni with that he's kind of no better than boris in some ways you know they're both the same that he's in essence at all yeah and, and all this like oh all right then but then kind of you know tory voters are looking at him and thinking well is that really it so it will be interesting to see what happens but i think at the minute it's very hard in the pandemic yeah that's your yeah, that's your problem with starmer isn't it brett the sort of lack of authenticity yeah the sort of uh he's just not got a particularly uh captivating way of talking um not he's not doesn't ever uh ooze ambition or not ambition sorry uh ooze passion that's what i meant to say uh, he's he's always very uh, you know he's got his facts and he's got his he's well spoken but he doesn't um, I don't think he draws people to him particularly right now. Yeah, I agree. And there was that sort of forensic thing that everyone was banging on about for the first few weeks, wasn't there? Where in PMQs he asked some kind of good questions and had some rebuttals and stuff and made Johnson look like a bit of a fool. But that that wears off, I think, after a while. And you you have to stand for something. You have to. Um, there has to be some kind of uh, substance to what you're you're talking about, and you can't just act in this sort of lawyer-like manner and expect people to get behind that consistently. Mm. I just I can't see it. You know, and those people on on the the sort of further left of the party, the silent um, or the, the the loud minority of of people in in the party, you're never going to keep those people happy, and they will they will vote 
Labour. I, I can't really see them voting for anyone else. The you know Socialist Workers Party don't field uh, candidates in all seats, so you know they're going to have to vote for somebody. Um, and you're, you're going to you're going to have those that that voter base, so they can't be the ones that shape your policy. And ultimately, I don't think they will be in under this Labour Party. Um, but similarly, you know, I get we'll, we'll get to talking about this later. I think Boris Johnson's got some uh, some some issues on his hands in terms of of uh, keeping members of his party. Um, happy and balancing out his cabinet and, and backbenchers that have been pretty loud about both the COVID response and some foreign policy issues. So it's a really interesting sort of dynamic. I think that the Tories are a lot more split than um, people people think they are, and they they you know have always done a better job of, of presenting a united front than the Labour Party have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that point, and I think the problem is in our party at the minute is is that you know we have always been mark and we certainly did this at the last election you know we were the party for business if you wanted to go out there and grow yourself and make and make your own two cents of the world um and build up your own fortune we were the party for you and now what we've turned around and said is um no we're going to keep all these things in place um and another issue with our party is this is, is that it seems to be the view at the minute that Hancock and Boris are under the controlling strings of SAGE and scientists. And then you've got all these scientists going around to Channel 4 and the Daily Mail and Christ knows what else, turning around and going, oh, we're going to have to have social distancing and masks until the next year, uh, till like next year, um, which is incredibly damaging for business. Um, and there's no, and it's like we said earlier, you know, it's that vacuum. It's what are we kind of fighting against? And the problem is now is, is that you have the COVID recovery group set up um, headed up by Steve Baker, who is now threatening a leadership election to Boris if he doesn't give a roadmap out, which I don't blame him to do. I mean, yeah, look, yeah. at the end of the day, um, there's always this big thing of kind of rebellion and what does it bring? Well, is that not the whole point of our democracy is, you know, to hold those in, in power accountable? And I think it's a fine line and a balance. Um, and at the moment, you know, Boris does need to show that he has got a backbone. He's not rolling over and saying yes anymore. He is making these decisions with the balance of what is best for business, what is best for mental health, what's best for our NHS um, in short term and long term. Um, and what's also, you know, good for protecting the vulnerable. So it's, it's a tough call and it's a hard sell. But ultimately... I think now that Boris has got Brexit out of the way, and this was said a lot that once, you know, the, the deal with the EU had been signed, Boris was a completely different man. Because at the end of the day, that is what he was elected to do. Mm. He was elected to get Brexit done. And now we have got Brexit done. He can completely focus um, mm. on on the pandemic and on the on the response that he's given. Yeah. In terms of the um the back to the north-south divide a, a bit, I wanted to sort of uh, bring up that... It, Obviously, Boris Johnson was sort of elected on this basis of he was getting Brexit done, and that's probably a huge reason why huge swathes of the North voted for him. But when I hear politicians talk about the North, I don't hear them talk about it in very much of a relatable way. They talk about it as if it's a place to gain seats. Um, but I don't. But now that Brexit has been done, I can't see. Uh, personally, I can't see Boris or his ministers, or and I, for the same reason that I can't really see Keir Starmer winning people over in the north for um, in in a relatable way. I, and I don't know if you think it's because perhaps these these politicians, Boris himself, Keir Starmer, are all southerners in that respect, or if it's just that 
politicians nowadays seem to be quite removed from how people generally live their lives anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts on that are exactly, but... Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily because they are both Southern. Um, sure, I think that sure. potentially play an element. Yeah, um, yeah. But we have got a lot of Northern MPs, and I think one of the issues is at the minute, is this, the 2019 intake have, have literally only just got through the door. So when it comes to speaking up for your constituents, um, a lot of which disagree with what the party's doing, I don't think a lot of them are speaking up because they want to keep their jobs at the next selection um, for CCHQ, which is not necessarily the wisest move. Um, but I think the problem is, is that if this pandemic had been maybe 12 months later than it already was, or maybe two years, maybe their MPs would be a little bit more confident in turning around and saying, this is what you need to do to win the North over. This is what you need to do. Um, and personally, I think kind of this like kind of not necessarily connection to the north that is kind of present is a bit of a problem because you know you're still funding things like hs2 which is just a big black hole of money yeah. which is majorly yeah. over budget which is majorly over deadline um but then you've got things like the northern powerhouse which is kind of struggling to take off um there was quite an interesting article that i saw on the independent yesterday doing the rounds on twitter um with everybody under the comments saying oh my god this is horrendous um you know with sunak wanting to implement thatcherite economic policy so and i think you know a lot of the problem with the north is um after kind of brexit uh, sorry in like after kind of 2004 time ish and blair kind of said you know oh let's like let all these people immigrate they all came to the north um a lot of the textile industry has not necessarily recovered that much um you know and kind of shipping kind of changed so it's kind of how do we build up those economies and i think after brexit there is a massive opportunity to offer incentives to european businesses to businesses that want to come and invest here from abroad from all over the world why don't you go and invest in your headquarters in manchester why not come to liverpool leeds newcastle and all these different northern cities or areas where they could manufacture and build so, and I think ultimately, you know, what MPs need to do is they need to get out on their doorsteps. They need to open up their surgeries and say, what do you want? The government needs to make that call for people to come forward um, and for their MPs to basically grow a backbone and, you know, maybe swallow some truths from their constituents that they don't really want to hear. Um, and obviously this is quite hard with the pandemic at the moment. I think this is a massive issue. This is that we're having to handle Brexit um, and all the strings that come attached to that with deals with different countries what happens to um european nationals that live here what happens to funding from the eu for universities for example or for like kind of um the science sector as, as such sorry i don't think i referred to it as the official term there but um and i think this is the problem is is that people are trying to cope with the fact that you know how do we distribute ppe how do we distribute the vaccine how do we distribute testing mm -hmm. when we're also trying to juggle on the other hand of oh how, how do we make this brexit work for us so it's quite difficult in a way um but it should be interesting to see how the party pulls through and hopefully they will pull through so i mean sunak is doing a great job um He's got some great ideas, and I think he's the exact, you know, fresh-faced, young politician that we need in the cabinet. The only Conservative politician I think that has um, 
come out looking more positive from coronavirus than than uh, they went into to the the virus with. And I think that if I was part of the Labour sort of formulated Labour Party strategy, especially within communications, and this is kind of we've seen this happen a little bit more. That's where my attention would be focused. It would be focused on Rishi Sunak quite a lot. Um, I think that that's where the, the yeah. Labour Party have to worry um, personally. Yeah. Massively, and I think an issue with the Labour Party, the ministers, is that you know, kind of their opponent to Sunak is Annalise Dodds. You know, I mean, and whilst she has, um, you know, she did quite an interesting um response the other week, and she was like, Oh, we need to look at taxes and what they're kind of doing, and it was almost kind of this reminiscent of, um, you know, when Labour was actually electable, but now there is, you know, kind of things doing the rounds on Twitter that. You know, senior source are saying, well, some of Starmer's front benchery's weakest points that they are practically invisible. The likes of Kate Green, and then the fact the likes of Annalise Dodds, and I think Starmer's massive issue is is that a lot of these MPs served under Corbyn, and they're going to have to shed that that Corbynite branding, that Corbynite association. Sunak's got a very very swanky, swift personal brand going for him. You know, he's got the logos, he's got the graphics going on. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, a, a lot of people laugh at it and a lot of people sit there and say, oh, well, like, why is he doing this? But um, it does make the difference when you're trying to market yourself as a politician and a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and Labour HQ need to match that with Annalise Dodds. They need to give her a buffer over, make her swanky, yeah. make her switch. To be fair, to be fair, they are supposed to be announcing uh, policy. Is it this week? And there, I I read that it's supposed to be boosting Annalise Dodds's reputation a little bit because they're a lot of them are going to be economic based. So, but they could potentially be already working on that. But uh, it rides so. it rides on having something to to talk about, having something to stand on. And you know, Annalise Dodds. To be fair to her, what can she do when she hasn't got any policies to talk about? You know, it's a it's a yeah. really difficult position that you're put in to criticize the government and say I don't like what you're doing here. And then not have anything to say, if I was uh, Chancellor, this is what I would be implementing. So I do feel for them a bit. And I, I think we're talking about, um, the, especially in the, in the Shadow Cabinet, incredibly capable politicians um, with, with respectable backgrounds. Uh, I think they will do a good job once there is a policy platform of shedding the kind of bumbling Corbyn cabinet uh, facade. Um, because it, it definitely existed and you know one of my biggest frustrations of um of the corbyn era was the inability to effectively communicate policy i think that will leave but the, it all rides like you say brett on having something to stand on um and i you know you can't win an election just on having a good chancellor the, the tories can't just have that and i think this is the frustration from a lot of backbenchers is that you know who who really does the rounds it's rishi sunak looks all right Whenever there's anybody else, whether it be Pretty Patel or Gavin Williamson or whoever, they look pretty poor. You know, that sort of um, Nadim Zahawi's done a decent job of talking about the the vaccine rollout. To be fair, but then you know there's still sort of issues with um, some of his previous activity. In you know when you look at in terms of sort of expenses and stuff completely removed from from uh the, the everyday voter so you know you can't win an election just based on, on one mp even though rishi sunak probably out of all of the the Tories, like i said has done a, a decent job but it, it, in terms of the the shadow cabinet you, you you have to have something to to be able to argue against because otherwise you're asking your your mps to do a poor um 
to do you know to do a job that isn't possible um and and i'd like to see them be far more aggressive in in challenging the government in putting forward their their suggestions as to how they would run the country i think that's the way that you win back power but you have to be present you have to be on the airways constantly it's something that the, the government haven't done a great job of um so you have to counteract that and they've wasted a lot of time already i think so you know uh, like like you say hopefully that change and it it's it's good for democracy when you have an effective opposition you know we all we all know that and i think everybody appreciates that Oh, massively agree. And I think that's been definitely one of the issues with this pandemic is, is that the fact that we didn't have a credible opposition, mm. you know, the pandemic set in and we still had Jeremy Corbyn uh, heading up the Labour Party. Yes, he was on his way out, but um, that leadership election was kind of on, it, on its way and it was a bit unstable. It was a bit unsteady. But I do agree with you. I think Labour needs to come out with policy and that will give them something to, it will stop this reactionary, reactive just kind of shouting and screaming that kind of was was reminiscent of the Corbyn era. Um, and I do agree with you on the point about Sunak um, and the fact that one politician, to be honest, I think Sunak will be leader at the next general election. I do really not think Boris will be here. Right. Yeah, I don't think Boris is going to stay, um, whether he gets pushed out or whether he leaves voluntarily. Right. You know, I think one thing that we can all, like what has been said a lot is, is that, you know, in the space of his 12 coming on, you know nearly 18 months as prime minister after the 2019 general election he's had more of a rough run-ins than most prime ministers you know he's had brexit to contend with he's had covid he's been in hospital he's then had the rest of the pandemic to deal with mm. and deal with the eu and then countless other countries as well so it's been an interesting ride for us and it won't surprise me if he just leaves of his own accord um but, and I think Sunak will be a hot contender for leader. There's talks of Javid coming back into the can, uh, cabinet. Kemi Badoosh, uh, Badunch, I think is the way you say it. I do apologise for that pronunciation. Um, but she's a hot contender for education. Um, and there's lots of being people promoted. Liz Truss is doing a great job at the minute. Um, so there's eyes on a lot of MPs at the minute. Um, and there's a lot of kind of whisperings of what is going to happen, what's going to happen at the reshuffle, you know. And at the moment, kind of, Boris has got this problem that Matt Hancock, even though he's done what some would consider as an admirable job and he's put some admirable effort into his role as health secretary, is his time now up because he's had such a rough ride of it with the pandemic, understandably. Gavin Williamson, the A-levels fiasco, you know all this bit about universities yeah yeah, yeah. when's his time gonna go you know yeah. he's he's on a, t a ticking ticket here you know when's his tech checkout time <laughs> so um it will be interesting to see what happens and it will be interesting to see what happens in terms of who gets reshuffled where who gets promoted who gets demoted um mm -hmm. and who may make a return as well so it yeah. should be interesting to see i i'm very very excited um, and I do think we have some underutilized talent mm -hmm. in the party at the minute. Um, should we move on to uh, current events? Just because I'm aware of time running away from us a little bit. Um, I'm going to jump onto the to the topic that is kind of we've kind of touched on already. Um, so uh, I just wanted to bring up the fact that the government's been sort of facing quite a lot of pressure recently from backbenchers to um, ease lockdown restrictions um, sooner rather than later mostly from the uh the 60 MPs that make up the CRG 
which I believe stands for Coronavirus Recovery Group. Um, however, Downing Street over the last couple of days, I can't remember if it was yesterday or at the weekend, um, basically said that they aren't going to uh, they aren't going to ease lockdown restrictions until they know that it's safe to do so, uh, following the guidance of uh, their scientists and and medical experts. Um, obviously, this isn't the first time that the government has. Uh, ignored their their backbenchers over the last year but um do you think this is the right move from the government um i think it's it's tricky because at the moment you have and it's kind of what i said earlier is is that you have these scientists coming out saying oh we need to be socially distant in place till next year and what have then happens is this is is that the media picks up on it and then all people are hearing at the minute is is that a scientist is saying something and it's viewed as a homogenous group. It's viewed as a um, they all parrot in the same thing. So what people then automatically presume is, is that somebody's then saying that to Boris in number 10 Downing Street, which is not necessarily the case. So and I think at the at the minute, you know, a lot of people are frustrated. It's, you know, we've had like quite a rough lockdown. People were separated from loved ones over Christmas time. Um, and I think the issue is now is that, that, that I know a lot of young people are getting very frustrated because we're last in the queue to get the vaccine. Um, we're still in national lockdown. So technically it's still illegal for us to be able to go and hug our grandparents, even though they are technically really safe from the virus in some in in a sem somewhat way um so there's a lot of frustrations and ultimately this roadmap needs to be put out the vacuum is creating an issue and a lot of business owners are very very frustrated um a lot of nhs staff are also then on the other hand equally frustrated because they're like well we went through one peak and because you opened up the we then went for another peak and it's you know it's this kind of i don't want to say it's a horseshoe where both sides are arguing one thing and they're actually quite similar to each other or kind of not in a way. Does that make sense? Mm. So but ultimately, people are sick of lockdowns. People are sick of being stuck in the house. They're sick of not being able to go and do things yeah. that are pleasurable. Um, and yeah. I remember, you know, kind of in the last lockdown, we didn't really have much timelines for elsewhere, but then... You know, as we started to move towards June time, they said, oh, in two weeks, non-essential retail will open. And at the start of July, we'll have this kind of Independence Day where pubs and restaurants can open, you know. And I, I, I don't know whether I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think my Instagram story was filled with every single person was in the pub yeah. or they were out for a meal or they were out in yeah. some form of beer garden. And then two weeks later, the gym's open. So I think yeah. the problem is that a lot of people are angry they're frustrated um you know in first lockdown we could all go and sit in the garden you know you could kind of go for a walk in the sunshine where now it's quite difficult because it's still dark at five o'clock it yeah. yes it's getting warmer because it's starting to move to february but um and it's understandable for the government in a way because there's a lot of this thing of oh well eat out to help out is the reason why we've had to lock down again so to be honest, in my personal opinion, I don't think the government will ever do anything right. In, a, in the eyes of a lot of people, there is, it's a it's a lose-lose situation for them. Because on one hand, you have the business owners that want to open up because their businesses are dying. And then on the other hand, 
you've got NHS staff and you have people who are at risk from COVID saying, please keep us locked in. It's not safe to go out still. You know, the NHS is still under immense amount of strain, critical care still full to the brim and stuff like this. So it's it's a difficult situation for number 10. And to be honest, I don't think we'll ever win. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Check. isn't it? I think, yeah, I, I think I kind of sort of agree with you in, in some regard. I think that there will always be people that will... will um, disagree with what the, the government does i think that's the same with any of any government any government um but for me the most important thing is that you have to make a decision and you have to stick by it and if we're going back to the start of the pandemic in my view the reason that we're in the situation that we're in is because decisions were put off and put off and put off and then we got to the point where we were being forced into um into making decisions pressure we gave into pressure too soon the right protections weren't put in place early enough and therefore we were kind of left in this vicious cycle of we have to stay in lockdown because um contagions are so high but a strict enough form of lockdown wasn't instituted um so uh, people were kind of in this sort of limbo situation where we were still able to go and do some stuff the virus was was still out of control um, and then we had this harsh lockdown, businesses damaged for a long period of time. And, you know, all this time later, we're still no, really, we're, we're a little bit further on because thankfully, because of the vaccine um, in defeating the, the virus. But really for, for businesses, it's been a year of um, emptiness. You know, I can't imagine what it must be like to, to own a, a bar or a pub or a restaurant or, a, you know, a small business on the high street. It must be a, a horrible time. Um and really that indecisiveness has been the issue and it's my personal opinion that um, the responsibility lies with our leaders and it's their job, it's, you know, it's Boris Johnson's role. Um, the reason that he went up for election was to say, I'm the person that, will, that can shepherd the country through whatever time comes up. Um, and mm. you know, obviously, you know, uh, he's, he's faced problems. In, in terms of, in terms of uh, backbenchers, I think it's always healthy to have groups no matter what party they're in, challenge the government. I think that there are certain individuals in the CRG who whose whose views border on the ridiculous. Um, however, you, you know it's important to have different voices, um, and it's good for the government. It keeps them on their toes. It politically it puts Boris Johnson in a really interesting position, and I think not only have we seen backbenchers speak out on COVID, we've also seen. The, this new intake of, of MPs speak out on the lack of um, financial protections for, for businesses in the north, in the Midlands. Um, we've seen backbenchers speak out against the, gen the, the genocide amendment that, that has recently um, come forward. You know, Ian Duncan Smith led, has, has, has been um, instrumental in leading this support for the genocide amendment that passed through the Lords. Lots of really disgruntled um, Conservative MPs um, in, in in, in Parliament at the moment who are, who are really unhappy for many different reasons about the way that the, the country is being run. So politically, it leaves Boris Johnson in a really interesting position. And this is why, coming back to what you said earlier, Olivia, about Steve Baker and, and this group leading a leadership challenge, um, has, has Boris Johnson got it in him to fend that off politically? Has he got the energy after the, the year he's had? But has he got the ability to be able to fend off that, that challenge? Because I think you have people like Rishi Sunak, who Boris Johnson thought would be a safe appointment to Chancellor, who wasn't really going to challenge him too much, who was just going to kind of do what he said, has been a bright spark and has been someone that clearly has aspirations. Um, 
And if the opportunity arises, I can see Rishi Sunak taking that opportunity. So I think that, you know, looking at it from a political point of view, it, it leaves the government in a, in a really precarious position. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think um, whether Boris comes out of this, you know, I, I had the opinion for a long time that Boris had had his t Theresa May uh, 2017 general election moment. So if we look at Theresa May, she lasted what? nearly two years after the general election she suffered multiple no confidence votes but then at the end of the day she still had to step down so um and the you know the thing at the time was is that you know if she was a man she would have been there a lot longer than she was so personally i think after brexit i'm starting to sway towards more he's if he's gonna go it's gonna be not for another year or two, um, you know, because kind of previously I had the I had the prediction that he would only last maybe until the end of twenty twenty one, if you know, on the optimistic scale. But um, I think he's got some serious competition, and I think he does know that. And I think the problem with the government is is that they're continuously polling positively. If polls were dreadful. Um, and, you know, and it was like Labour were leading ahead consistently for a month, maybe two months, con uh, you know, on the trot. We probably would change tack, but we're not. So at the minute, it's quite hard. And I think kind of going off the 2019 intake, it's quite, actually quite interesting because party members actually have the opposite opinion of them. Party, you know, kind of members have this opinion that a lot of them are following it around like sheep you know they dare not rebel because they want them there um are rumors of you know people having to back certain amendments and back certain yeah. bills or prospects of a job in the next 20, 20, sure. um, 12 months so it's quite interesting but um ultimately boris has got some issues he's got some issues with china as well it's quite interesting you mention mention um the uyghur muslims um mm. genocide we actually did an event at that on believe beyond the other week yeah which was and great, by the way. Thank you. It was a really good event and it was really insightful. And I think what is happening with that is completely and utterly um, abhorrent. It's abhorrent that our government is ignoring it. But ultimately, end of the day, our issue is this pandemic. Um, and, you know, and I think kind of Boris has got this opinion that there is, you know, he needs to look after the vaccine rollout. He needs to look after this kind of how many deaths are per day. What is happening now? So... And this is the issue, but if Boris doesn't kind of basically sort himself out in the bluntest of terms, um, he is going to face a leadership election, and it's whether Sunak stabs him in the back. Yeah. And that's me. Um, I don't know whether Sunak will. Right. What's the feeling like? Because you'll know this better than we do among sort of party members about the way the party's being led at the moment. Um, so I think there is a lot of distaste towards, I mean, it, it's kind of split because what happened before Christmas was, is, is that you actually had a lot of people leave. People just took their memberships, ripped them up and left the party. And now the people that are left are the people that have, um, that are kind of the opinion, you know, I'm not very happy with lockdown, but at the end of the day, I'm going to stay because if I leave, it's, you know, where, who's going to. It's kind of that that old time old thing of well, if you leave, all you then let happen is all the things that you hated kind of take over and transform. So are you not better to stay vocalized 
how you feel yeah. and um fight for something so a lot of people are not keen on lockdown um and a lot of people are very fed up but then you also have kind of one wing of the party that's kind of a bit like oh the government are doing really well you know we should be locking up so it depends on what kind of camp you sit in at the minute mm. i think it's very split um i think kind of the anger has died down a lot before christmas a lot of people were very very annoyed they weren't very happy we'd had our conference cancelled you know was that based on re-entering lockdown again the fact that the people leaving before christmas or was that more yeah. based on the the reversal of the decision to suddenly cancel christmas after the the decision to open up again after the last lockdown um yeah yeah which one was yeah. it and this is a good thing and <laughs> every new decision that was got made we lost members people left mm -hmm. so it was kind of like the right. off. it yeah. didn't matter yeah. Yeah. do you know what yeah. i mean it was kind of like when was people cut off points and it was just kind of one thing happened one week and some people had leave three weeks later something else people had leave so and i think that kind of like all the people that are left now are those that um are kind of fed up and are angry but are just kind of sticking with it because there's also the opinion that why leave if there's a leadership election on the horizon because obviously you have to be a party member for so long so then vote in a leadership election i think it's like six months right. yeah. um so that's why a lot of people are staying as well because they yeah, want is, to vote yeah. in a leadership election. i so one of the reasons why i thought that um or the reason that I thought that Boris Johnson was making the right decision by, and his government were making the right decision by ignoring the backbenchers on their calls to ease lockdown restrictions is because I think this is what they should have done from the beginning. As in, they should have, they should have been, from, at the end of the first lockdown, they should have been paying more attention to the numbers and to what people, what scientists and medical experts were telling them before easing the lockdown because we've ended up having another two. And... Boris Johnson's own words uh, recently were him saying that the reason he doesn't want to open up quickly is because he doesn't he wants this to be the last lockdown he doesn't want to have more um and I think that I obviously I think that if this has happened this uh, tactic had happened sooner then they may not have lost all these members that they supposedly lost um each time a decision was made um it's the it, to me I've been reading a book recently that's called quiet it's about introversion and extroversion but they were talking about um, how uh, extroverts are more likely to uh, take a to uh, it's this is related so bear with me <laughs> how <laughs> extroverts are more likely to make the decision that affects them straight away rather than the one that affects them later on down the line and I think that it applies here where people just need to be patient because if we open up again too soon then we know what the what the repercussions of that are. I know the argument is that the vaccine rollout is happening. <laughs> All right. You, if we, well, I was with you when we were making that argument eight months ago. I was sure. with you when we were making that argument, you know, in April. Two months ago. <laughs> uh, two, yeah, two months ago. I was, I'd be with you when we were making that argument in Christmas when, you know, they reversed on the other decision. But there's only so long that you can tell people whose lives are being decimated by lockdown or the virus, their mental health is being crushed. Just be patient, you know. And I, I appreciate what you're saying. I think that's the reason yeah. that those decisions was made were made. But that wears thin after a while. Sure. And at some Which point, is why they should have done it to begin with. Exactly. Because they wouldn't exactly, have had all yeah. this to at, deal with now. At, but... at some point, you just need just make a fucking decision, right? Yeah. You know, that's 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 kind of where I'm left with, and stick with it, <laughs> and let's see it out. Yeah.
Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think the point is, is that, is that people are being not, and it, the, the word selfish is being used. And I don't like that term no. because at the end of the day, when you go out and vote, when you go and make any form of decision, generally that revolves around you. That revolves around your income. It revolves around the effect on your health, um, surrounding family. And mm-hmm. um, so that's how you make your decisions. And it's very understandable that a lot of people are saying, let's take that personal responsibility because, and I'll take young people as this massive example. Um, and I know this is certainly a grievance among the younger members of the party, that kind of there is no policy on young people at the minute. There is no um, kind of consideration. Nobody's listening to us. Nobody's hearing us out. We're just kind of sat there and being kind of chewed off. And they're saying, oh, no, like, you can wait, be patient, be patient. And, um, and it's understandable. And I think a lot of people were willing to do that at the last lockdown because the economic effects weren't so present, you know this kind of sharp drop in GDP that we've seen, this kind of economy shrinkage that we've seen. So, and it's very understandable because now I know certainly for myself, my cohort of graduates that I'm like on a course where we're all sat here looking at ourselves going, how are we going to get a job? How are we going to get there into the job market? How are we going to buy a house? And there's lots of, lots of issues that were already very present with young people that now have been kind of emphasized with covid um i'll take the university's example for one case um you know we're being charged 9k a year for online lectures you know a few powerpoint slides um and maybe a few clips of audio yeah and it's ridiculous so and where there was this thing previously that were students being ripped off by universities when they were face to face and it was very hard to prove because it was like, well, it depends on the standard you're teaching. Now it's all online. It almost provides that platform that, you know what? Students, they are being ripped off because you cannot expect for you to turn around and say to students, you have to come in face-to-face for however many years and then now say you're getting the same standard when you move it all online. So, and nobody's doing anything about it. Everybody's out there just looking at each other and going, no, we're not doing anything. So, you know, and I think this is why, you know, I mean, certainly I'm going to take it off my own, um, university examples that compliance with kind of COVID restrictions are getting lower. Mm. Um, and I think that, I don't think all students are doing it. I think that's a, an unfair misrepresentation um, from the media um, yeah. and from the Karen and Gammon tabloids <laughs> that you see, you know, the Daily Mail, the Mirror. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's very unfair, you know, and it's like a lot of people are sat there They've not been able to work in a pub. They've not been able to go and work in their part-time work. A lot of students are also struggling for part-time work because of social distancing. So the number of staff has decreased, you know, and it's like, what policies are they going to bring in that actually benefit young people? What is going to happen? And there's nothing. So, this could be a completely other topic. (laughs) Honestly, you could go on for days. Yeah. (laughs) We'll have to get you back on to talk about that because that is a topic that we are very passionate about and we could talk about for, for a very long time. But I am conscious of time. So <clears throat> let's move on to the uh, second current events um, topic, which is just uh, basically to talk about how Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have uh, have been in the news again recently. I saw another headline this morning, which I, I'm going to have to try and remember as I recite what I uh, uh, the summary that I was going to give. Uh, basically, the the Duke of Sussex, so Prince Harry, uh, accepted damages recently against the Mail of Sunday for for um, 
uh, def- defamatory articles that were posted about him towards the end of last year. Um, and the and Megan also won a privacy claim against the same against the Mail on Sunday uh, for publishing a private letter that was written by her to her estranged father. Um, the media have had this sort of strange, uh, sometimes ugly fascination with with Prince Harry and, and Meghan, um, especially over the last year after they stepped down as uh, senior royals. Um, I can't remember. What was the top? Uh, I don't know if either of you saw it this morning. It's, oh, apparently both of them are going to feature on Oprah Winfrey's uh, show. Uh, that was what I saw again. But what what is it with this media fascination with them? Do I, can either of you answer that? I'll let you have a crack. In my opinion, I think it's a mixture of the fact that she's an American, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that she's mixed race, and or both. So, and I think, Mm. I mean, look, I'll give you an idea of how incredibly stupid all these headlines about the pair of them are. Last year, I was actually working for the NHS, and that's why I did my placement year. So, and I actually right. go to go and research all this Megxit, Megan and Harry, because when they announced their departure this time last year, I was kind of busy dealing with COVID. I was busy at work and, you know, COVID was starting to be a thing. So, and I think this fascination stems from the fact that the Daily Mail, the Mirror, the Sun, and all of these tabloids, they want clicks, they want sales, they want clicks. Sure. Um, and it stems from this thing of... Um, the obsession that we have with the royals and you know and i think it's this obsession that we have with the royals and they're these celebrities in our lives that um are kind of um you know something to entertain us with you know does predate for as long back as we can remember yeah. that is kind of intrinsically baked in our culture surrounding the monarchy um and i think you know kind of this oprah you know, documentary has come out on the headlines in the past few days. But this was actually rumoured this time last year. Um, I went back and found an article and this was rumoured back then that they were going to go and do some big tell-all with Oprah. Um, And it was actually that they gave up their royal titles and relinquished all their duties last year on Mm. 31st of March. But the decision was to be renewed in 12 months. So it's quite interesting that if decisions are being renewed at this point in time, and then this documentary has come back out because Harry doesn't want to come back. Yeah. So, mm. um, but ultimately, it's the media's ever dying purpose to get clicks yeah. and this kind sure. of tabloid student journalism culture that we have at the moment in our media. Yeah, it's it's so draining for me. Like there are so many important issues we've covered some today that they could be talking about. There's so many things they should be raising awareness of you know things that are really impacting people stuff that needs to be discussed and constructive conversations that need to be had and all the time brett you said it like uh, we had the discussion about picking the topic for this you said that you got a notification from the bbc yeah saying that she was pregnant i got a note as in yeah it was as in it was a breaking news notification that's not breaking news to be reading about talking about it certainly isn't front page news especially not at the moment and this like you say it's about garnering clicks and you know um making money and it's it's disappointing that that's the position that we're in with with journalism in this country it'd be interesting since you know to see what what happens on the the oprah um, show or you know whatever it is 
um, I think that it's not a story that's going away and as you know, people that, that kind of discuss discuss this stuff then you know it's, it's it's kind of worth following and keeping an eye on but how much does this really impact impact us I don't think it really does I hope they have an amazing life I, I don't think it's necessarily something that we need to be um, following constantly and the way that it's discussed in many of these tabloids is I think it brings us all down you know i think it was the daily star wasn't it that posted that that picture with um couple that, that it had their faces kind of blacked out and it said couple that hate uh yeah. being in the limelight take uh, you know photo with their, their their new baby or whatever it was um you know kind of just really degrading uh sort of bottom of the barrel nonsense that i, I think yeah. very few of us like to like to see yeah, I definitely agree. And I think the problem is with this is, is that you have in one kind of camp, you have Megan turning around saying, I don't want all this attention. But yet, you know, she, there is this argument that, you know what, she married into the royal family. She already known what happened to Diana. You know, she's kind of sat there. It's like, well, are you seriously whinging about this when there's people starving and dying? But also this kind of camp of well aren't they entitled to their own like kind of right to privacy you know should we feed off them because they are the royal family and i think the problem is is that the media makes megan and harry worse and megan and harry make the media worse it's this vicious cycle and one thing that's actually funnily never picked up on um in the past coming days is how much of taxpayers money do megan and harry suck up you know and i know that they are on their way to becoming financially independent and if you know, kind of a, a documentary with Oprah um, stops them from kind of, you know, ever having to sit there and go to the Queen with their hand out. Um, is that a good thing? Now, does it come at the expense of slandering our monarch? That's a debate for another time. But I mean, utterly at the moment of the point is this, I don't really care what they're doing in California. I don't care what their Archibald, Spotify deal says, does. You know, yeah. do they go into how to make green tea in California? I don't really care. No. Um, no. What I do care about is the finances of it. Um, and I think a lot of people echo that. But it's like, as you said at the minute, you know, we've got a million and one things to be doing. And I think, you know, this kind of state of our journalism is, and, you know, I took touch upon the lockdown thing again, that there's never any positive news out there. It's all this slander and all this doom, yeah. gloom, and just kind of this really negative outlook. And I think, you know, um, the, what the Daily Star did with the blacked out faces was, was it, you know, it's just why did you need to do it? Yeah. You know, it's kind of, and I, I think a lot of people share that opinion that they don't really care what happens to Meghan and Harry. They just want to get on with their lives. They want to get on with lockdown get the vaccine rolled out and get back to normal you know maybe if we were in normal times this would be a different conversation but um definitely at the minute there is bigger fish to fry than yeah. megan and Hal. do you think part yeah. of the annoyance from the the tabloids is that with the royal family there's always kind of been this unwritten agreement that they that the tabloids the newspapers can document the royals lives and they're kind of on a string in terms of if the royal family want to stay relevant, they need the newspapers. If the newspapers want to stay relevant, they need the royal family. That's kind of gone away. They've picked up on this story. And Meghan, who is this kind of outsider who's come into the royal family, stolen away Harry, who was the golden boy. Um, and she's not allowing uh, the British media in particular an insight into their lives. And there's that this kind of like 
poisonous attitude towards them now because she's kind of not allowing them that that sort of unwritten agreement do you think that kind of comes into it at all because that uh, that's kind of how it seems to me a little bit i agree with kind of the unwritten agreement sector of it but to be honest i think if william had gone and married um an american woman or a mixed race woman or both um such as megan i do think there would be more media uproar because one of the issues with harry is is he's not in line to the throne you know it's actually you know he's kind of always sat there on the outskirts you know he actually went and was allowed to go and serve in the army um you i think it was the royal air force actually that he went and served in um you know, and then there's always been them big questions of, oh, well, is he actually Charles's son? So, and to be honest, I think that it's, there is this unwritten rule with the monarchy that because they sit there on their clouds of luxury, in their luxury mansions, you know, what cost do they actually bring to the taxpayer? You know, yes, they do bring in money from tourism, but, do, you know, is that still kind of relevant? And I think in a way, that it's a fine line and balance, but I think bullying Megan in the same way that Diana was bullied is not healthy. And I think it's just kind of a reflection of our gutter barrel journalism that is going on at the minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are seeing through it. People are seeing through the likes of Sky News, through the likes of, you know, kind of um, the BBC. And is the BBC still relevant? That's a massive debate that's going on at the minute and certainly a debate for another time. But um, people are seeing through it. And I think especially with the pandemic, people are, um, you know, kind of thinking, well, yeah, all right then. But when's my vaccine coming? So, yeah, definitely yeah. Um, topics for other times. And people just don't care, I don't think. No, no. definitely more important topics, I think. Yeah. I agree. Um, let's move on to quick fire questions then, shall we? Uh, my first question is based on a news article that uh, came up today Um and it's uh, is uh, we've also put a poll up, which as the time of recording is still up to vote on, but obviously people won't be able to access it. Do you know it what? Off the top of your head, what the uh, uh, the sort of answers are? The the, the Yes, are. I do. Okay. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. So the the question is: Is the silencing of free speech an issue on university campuses? Yes. Can I invoke the nuance? card <laughs> yeah you not. can invoke the nuance i would say yeah. i would say there's a sort of nuance position i think it depends on campus to campus and i think there probably is a slight issue but it is majorly overblown a lot of the time that would kind of be my that would be kind of my my perception of it because we've had our our free speech on campus issue brett you know there was a, a have, interview yeah. that was organized with peter hitchens a, a debate um, that was postponed by the, the student union in, in Portsmouth. And, you know, I, I was pretty vocal against the student union, met with the student union at the time to ask them why it was cancelled, because I wanted to question Pete Hitchens myself, thought it'd be a great opportunity. Um, and was very disappointed not to be able to do that. So it happens and it is an issue, but I, I don't think it's nearly as much of an issue as many people I think it is. Mm. See, I just, I mean, personally, like myself in Liverpool, I disagree with that because. I am on that campus that is so left wing um, and that is so kind of, there is one argument, you cannot hear another argument. Um, and personally, my view on it is, is, is that we need to show to the likes of lefty student unions, lefty uni, um, university unions, their staffing unions, um, that you know what, you cannot silence conservative debate, you cannot silence 
um, you know, guest speakers. And I think, you know, kind of one of the interesting things that's coming along um, with the um, free speech bill is this cancelling of students, which I massively agree with. I've been a victim to it myself. Um, you know, my university sat there and said, yes, the tab can write five different articles about yourself. They can target you, misrepresent you and harass you um, because it's free speech. Well, that's not fr not free speech, um, you know. So I think that there is work to be done, but I do agree with Jack that it does differ from university campus to to university campus. But um, personally, I am keen on preventative measures. So it will be yeah. interesting to see how it comes along. But I don't know, maybe it's just the, the libertarian that's deep inside of me kind of coming out with those things. So um, it will be interesting. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this with you maybe in, a, in another time because i think it's a really interesting topic and something that i'm really passionate about particularly as you know guarded against like protecting free speech and i think that this these suggestions by government are, are also very interesting so mm. it's something mm. that there needs to be more conversation about i think for sure i think there needs to be a line for for um where, uh, where what becomes abusive because i think that's the issue with a lot of these camp with with especially with the situation with yeah when with uh, Peter Hitchings, the the issue was uh, that he was accused of saying things that were deemed as potentially uh, um, abusive to to certain communities. Yeah, he was meant to be speaking during LGBT History Month, which is this month. Yeah, yeah. The complaints were made and saying that it's not right to have somebody with anti-LGBT views speak at the university during LGBT History Month. The reason that I wanted him to come was because I wanted to question him on his views. The best way for me, in my opinion, to stand up for what I believe in is to question him on those views, which is why I wanted him to come. Yeah. To me, that's yeah. the essence of free speech. Um, and it was postponed. And then Peter Hitchens refused to uh, reorganise the event um, because he said that he was being silenced. He could have come the next month but he didn't want to because for him it was a, a good publicity opportunity which is why i think that, that that's why i take that nuanced that nuanced yeah, position yeah. i think i would agree, Definitely and I agree. Needs to be... sorry go ahead no you go ahead sorry <laughs> I, know, I was just going to say that that line definitely needs to be uh, become less blurred and that yeah. there needs to be more conversation about it um from a, a an unbiased point of view obviously yeah. Um, for the at the moment, the poll stands at fifty percent saying yes, forty four percent saying no, and six percent saying unsure. Interesting. Interesting. So it's quite uh, yeah divisive. Um, my next question is: Are you for or against homeschooling? Oh, I'd say against. That's a bloody good question. That yeah, I'd say against as well. Interesting. Even well, given the last year. Yeah. Yeah. I would say yes, but my, my thing is with this homeschooling is, is that I believe that all parents should have the free right to choose. But then, I mean, personally for myself, like I'm a big stickler for things like consent education, sex education, you know, relationships education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, personally, I do think children need to be in school. Um, and if we don't have, if a child chooses to be homeschooled, it's that how do you then make sure that they teach that, whether it be making making them come into the local school one afternoon. Um, and it's like, oh, well, you can homeschool your child, but you've got to bring them in on XYZ day for PSHEE um, education. So, but I think that um, homeschooling 
is not something keen on for the general public. I think a lot of parents have struggled. I think it was okay during the first one, but now everybody is sat here like, no, children need to be in school. Um, it's quite difficult. And it's not also the educational aspects of it. It's actually um, the social aspects yeah. of it. Um, and certainly for children that are in essence um, only child or have siblings that do not live in the home, um, they don't interact with any other children. So I think that... Um, homeschooling is a policy that is not going to be taken upon fondly after the last year yeah i'd agree yeah, yeah. i would agree as well I, I think obviously yeah the parents should have the choice but i think that it's probably more beneficial for the the, the child to to be in school um, my third question is again based on another article i saw today uh the question is should burning wood at home be banned because a new report came out today saying that the highest cause of air pollution in the UK now is uh, burning wood in your households or, you know, fireplaces. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so anti this because I love a proper wood fire. And there's nothing nicer than, you know, getting a fire on, uh, sit around the fire. But if it, you know, that pollution argument, it's probably quite yeah. a strong one. Um, Especially in more built-up areas, I guess. So, yeah, my gut says no, but yeah. maybe it's just my love of, of the I fire. Think, I think the thing is, is that I think wood burners um, can be very advantageous in some ways, but disadvantageous in others. Mainly dangerous being in one of them, um, and then the the you know the overall long-term air pollution effects. Um, so I think if we had a situation where, you know, we had the market providing efficient log burners safe log burners you know guidance from the fire service on this is how to do it properly this is how to heat yourself safe then i think they probably would be more of um a popular item but ultimately i think at the moment that um especially over the past year if people choose to use a log burner because it's more efficient for their um utility bills and their expenditure then so be it as long as they're doing it safely May I stress that? Don't don't want to setting themselves on fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I want to do more sort of. I, I probably should have done more research before asking the question. Into like what what that's based on? Is it based on the last year? Because I, I imagine that air pollution has gone down in terms of traffic over the last year. So I don't know if on a during normal times, then the air pollution would be you know higher because of uh, cars and and uh, planes and whatnot, but. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I mean, tech, they're not really needed anymore, are they? Fireplaces. They're meant for to keep that. They were meant to keep the house warm, and obviously we have better heating systems these days. So, I, I get what you're saying because I do really like a, a house. I was gonna say a house fire. <laughs> I don't like a house fire. No, I like a a, <laughs> a, a, a a fireplace, and you know, it's quite relaxing. It's nice to watch. It's um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting question though my next question yeah <laughs> I mean already in some of the I've been looking at flats recently because we're moving a lot of places have old decommissioned fireplaces in them already anyway so it's not like they're super popular these days I think but um, my fourth question is do you think birthday cards should still be a thing yes really I'm not a fan is that just see I, I, sorry go on Jack. No, sorry. It, no it might it might just be me really really like 
I don't know what the word is. Shallow. I, mean, I don't know if that's the right the right word, but I, I, it's nice. It's thoughtful. You get a card. You, you open it, and for me, that'll stay on the side for a few days, and or you know, I'll put it up in. A, I'll file it away somewhere. I'm not going to say that I chuck them away necessarily, but um, I. Uh, you can just text somebody now, right? Is that really? I don't know. I mean, personally, I'm a I'm I'm a, I'm a keen preserver of tradition. Mm. Um, in some ways, but things like birthday cards. Um, one thing that I now know is a thing after COVID is electronic cards. I got an electronic mm. Christmas card for the mm. first time this year. Yeah. Um, but I think a birthday card is a great cop out. Um, when you don't really know a person, you know it's that new person at work. They've not been there for long. You know, you get them a card and you get them. Oh, I'll buy you a coffee. You know? yeah. So. Um, Personally, I do think we should keep birthday cards. Um, and I think birthday cards are one of those things that you can customise and affect to how much you want to show your appreciation to mm. somebody. So, um, yes, I am for keeping birthday cards. Mm. They can be quite personal. But then again, uh, but I like, I don't, I'm, I'm of the argument that you can just send a message to people now. Um, yeah, I And with the same effect. Can. Yeah. I feel like you can, but like, what do you do? Like, I feel like if it, you know, if my nan's birthday ever ever went by, and you know, I I hadn't got her a card, sure. I feel like she would be very questioning of that. Yeah, I think it very depends on who's the recipient. But personally, yes, I am a fan yeah. of, of a birthday card. It's a nice thing to, and it's a good place to put money if you're giving money to somebody as well. It's true. Yeah. true. True. What do you guys, What do you guys do with your birthday cards after you've received them? Do you keep them Me? all, or do you? leave them on the side until i move because i mean i know the thing is for me because i've done like a year in industry placement um and stuff like that like i've moved every year i've been at uni so generally when i get a birthday card it actually just stays on the side until either my mum throws it away or um it, it just kind of gets like put in a pile i hate throwing them away personally um i think that if somebody takes the time to write you a card um it's something to be uh, grateful of because they've shown their appreciation to for you sure. but I don't know. Maybe that's like the traditional. No, it's good. Listing me, but um, yes, personally, yeah. that's my opinion. So. Yeah. I'm gonna sound really heartless because. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, my last birthday it was the first time that I got rid of all of them. <laughs> I, I sometimes I'll keep the ones that mean the most to me, like from my close family members or whatever, or, or close close friends. But all the ones that I think look the nicest or are that aren't just clearly you know somebody's gone out and quickly written happy birthday brett and then sent it <laughs> i i but i to, to me i don't see the point in keeping them because i i've i've kept them in the past and they end up just taking up a load of space in a box and i never really look at them again so it's just i'm not particularly a hoarder so i i find i just don't see the point in having them really i guess yeah Maybe it's just me. Maybe I am a heartless bastard, but <laughs> um, my final question is: What's your favourite shape? Oh, uh, you're way more ooh, excited about this question I than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a really hard question. Um, I, I'm, a, I don't know actually. To be honest, I'm going to say a triangle. Um, mm. it's not a square, but it's not round. That this sounds this is going to actually how <laughs> intellectually uh, incapable I am answering questions like this. Um, I don't know. I think the thing is, is that um, 
yeah a triangle because it's not boring like a square but it's not unstructured mm. like a circle 28 episodes in and brett is finally at the quick fire question <laughs> what is your favorite shape um oh, yeah. goodness. Uh, <laughs> rectangle right because it's just a slightly more interesting square or no. i don't have an answer mate that's as good as you're gonna get from me i'm afraid I'm ex I'm surprised what? you didn't go for something like a hexagon or something. Because well, they have no use, oh. really, do they? <laughs> no, but they're cool. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. What's yours, Brett? I don't. I like. Uh, I don't know. I was thinking. I like stars of shape as well. Like That's you know the, the classic star symbol or the like a heart oh. or a, like a crescent. Is that a shape as well? I like a yeah. crescent. It is a shape. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So I might go for a crescent. Well, you've yeah. had more time to think about it than us. <laughs> I literally just came up with that then. I was planning on saying like triangle or circle yeah. or something, but then I thought of that. And... Nice. That's a good answer. So... <laughs> anyway. I've never if... had a question of it. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, our quickfire questions can be the most divisive because of the like, people true. get very passionate about like, oh, sometimes we ask about food or, or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Today it was shapes. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Olivia. It's been really yeah, interesting. Thank you so definitely, we definitely need to have you on again because I'm sure we could have spoken about many different things for hours. Um, Honestly, don't offer it to me because I'll never chew. I'll never finish chewing your ear off. So. <laughs> <laughs> how can people? How can people get in touch with you or uh, Blue Beyond if they want to get involved? Um, so if you want to get involved with us at Blue Beyond, you can head to our. Um, website it's just blue beyond uh, www.bluebeyonduk.com if you want to get in touch with me personally you can um get in touch with me via my twitter my email is in my twitter handle um so well in my twitter bio so it's at live uh, underscore lever l-e-v-e-r um and you can generally reach me there if you've got any questions about blue beyond just shoot me a line we're always looking for new team members um always looking for people to get involved with us partner with us we're pretty much an open group. We're pretty easy going with stuff. So yes, just get in touch. And can I just ask again, thank you for, uh, for having me on. Since the lack of the pub and uh, university society <laughs> socials, I have nobody to argue with. So it's just yeah. coming out an episode <laughs> and So you provided me with a great opportunity. Thank you so it's much. A pleasure. Uh, it was a pleasure, You're always yeah. welcome back. You're always welcome back. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, uh, all the Thank links you. that you've just said will be in our description. So if anybody needs them, look out for them. Um, and remember to like the video if you liked it, or the podcast wherever you're listening to it, and subscribe to us or follow. Uh, we'll see you next week. Brilliant. Cheers. Thank Thanks you. for Bye. watching. Bye. Thank you.